This is Deacon Matt Newsom, the Catholic Campus Minister at Western Carolina University, and welcome to the next episode of our CCM Summer School podcast, where we are looking at the various different heresies that the Church has had to deal with over the course of her history, and uh, and in the process, learning a little bit more about church history, the development of, of Christian doctrine, and, uh, and and that sort of thing. So this week, we are looking at a group called the Cathars. Um, we're shifting a little bit from, from what we've covered in the past. We've been up to this point uh, really focusing on a lot of the early heresies of the church. Um, a lot of these heresies dealt with some real fundamental theological issues um, of, of importance to the faith. Uh, the Christological heresies like Arianism, uh, Nestorianism, you know, that dealt with the, the issues of just who is Jesus Christ, uh, what do we believe about him, how do we understand um, you know, the relationship between his divinity and his humanity, um, or Pelagianism that really tackled uh, issues uh, about grace uh, and original sin, uh, and these sorts of fundamental things. Um, a lot of these heresies were addressed by, by church councils. They um, resulted in uh, definitive declarations of the faith, like the Nicene Creed that we still use at Mass. Um, and if you look geographically, um, a lot of the ones that we've been talking about um, have been focused uh, more on the eastern half of Christianity, the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium. Um, and we're, we're shifting gears a little bit as we move into the medieval period. Um, we're going to be focusing more on the West. Um, the heresies that we'll be talking about take place in Western Europe. And the one that we're talking about today, the Cathars, um, you know, it was this was not uh, having to do with a question of some unanswered or, or um, you know, mysterious point of doctrine that was kind of up for debate where the church had to debate this and figure out how we're going to talk about it. You know, it was pretty clear from the start um, that, that Catharism was, uh, was heresy, was incompatible with, with Christianity. Uh, so that heresy had a bit of a different character to it, but but we'll learn about that um, as we as we kind of progress through this episode here. So, um, who are the Cathars? Where do they come from? You may or may not have heard of them. If you've ever done any study of the Middle Ages, they they've probably cropped up somewhere because they are important uh, in terms of uh, of medieval history, uh, especially if you're studying you know France, uh, Northern Italy, those those places that were really strong beds for the Cathar movement. Uh, they did not originate in um, in Western Europe, though. We, we think they came from the East and kind of spread into Western Europe. Um, the word Cathar derives from a Greek word, katharoi, which means pure. They called themselves the pure ones. Um, they were known for uh, their strict asceticism. Um, they lived very simple lives. We would, you know, say monastic lives, kind of in, 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 that, uh, in that vein of self-denial, right? They were celibate. They um, uh, limited themselves to a strict vegetarian diet. Um, and so their, their purity that they professed um, really manifested itself in their lifestyle. And that made them attractive to a lot of people. Um, but if you haven't really looked into their history, if all you know uh, about them is maybe what you've seen on TV documentaries and things like that, um, I've noticed that they're often painted as a sympathetic 
group. They're, they're painted as a kind of esoteric, you know, group of Christians who were, you know, maybe had some ideas that differed from what the, uh, you know, the institutional church thought. And because of that, they were, um, they were persecuted by the church. Um, or, you know, perhaps they're, they're painted um, because of their, their pure ascetic lifestyles. They're, they're painted kind of as a contrasting figure to the clergy uh, at the time, the Catholic clergy at the time, that uh, were suffering uh, a great deal from corruption and, and worldliness, at least in the perceptions of, of a lot of people. They were overly worldly. And so the very strict, minimalist lifestyles of the Cathars uh, made them, you know, just kind of made the worldliness of the Catholic clergy you know, even more apparent, and so the church didn't like this, and so they persecuted the Cathars. So they're they're painted as the underdogs. Um, I'm, I'm thinking back, and I'm, there's a documentary I saw on the History Channel. This was years ago. Um, this was right after the Da Vinci Code movie had come out, um, and I haven't read the Da Vinci Code novel uh, by Dan Brown. I haven't watched the Da Vinci Code movie. I really have no interest in in that. But I remember when the movie came out. Um, you know, television was just full of all kinds of documentaries and and things that were exploring some of the historical questions and accusations and claims that uh, Dan Brown was making in in the book and in the film. And I used to watch a lot of the History Channel uh, back then. And so I remember watching these documentaries. And there was one that was um, uh, dealing with the Cathars, and it was claiming that the Cathars were uh, a minority group of Christians that were persecuted by the church because they were the keepers of the secret uh, the real secret of Jesus Christ that the church didn't want, you know, being exposed. And, of course, the secret in, in the book, The Da Vinci Code, so spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't read that book, is that Jesus was, in fact, married. His wife was Mary Magdalene, and that they had offspring. They had a daughter. And through the daughter of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, the divine bloodline lived on in some of the, the European noble families, and that that bloodline, that divine bloodline, that was the, the real Holy Grail. That was a true Holy Grail. And the Cathars are supposed to be, you know, the keepers of that secret, or at least one of the keepers of that secret through history. And that's why they were persecuted by the church, who didn't want that secret, you know, being let out. Um, and of course, that's not historically accurate at all in the slightest. Um, but that was kind of how the Cathars were painted. Um, and of course, revisionist histories are nothing new. I remember I was given a book um, a while back, a little booklet that was written in the 1930s, so almost 100 years ago. Um, and it was written by a, uh, a Baptist preacher at the time. And the book was called The Trail of Blood. And what uh, the author of this book was trying to do was to give a history of the Baptist church, starting with John the Baptist. So he was claiming apostolic origins for you know, the Baptist denomination. Um, or I guess if they started with John the Baptist, that would actually be pre-apostolic you know, in origins for the Baptist uh, denomination. Um, and it did that by kind of drawing this line of succession um, from John the Baptist, you know, to the modern day Baptist church by identifying as 
proto-Baptists all of these different heretical groups that have cropped up over the history of the church, including many of the ones that we've been talking about in this podcast series. The claim made in this book was these were all, you know, actually Baptists by other names who were carrying on the flame of the true church that Jesus founded um, that was being persecuted by the Catholic Church and, you know, so it had to exist kind of underground and that's why it only cropped up in these so-called heretical movements until the um, in the religious and social climate of Europe after the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, made it possible for the, the, the true church, which he considered to be the Baptist um, denomination, to kind of come out and have a public um, presence uh, again. And so in this book, they talked about the Cathars, and they identified as Cathars, um, you know, these kind of proto-Baptists, you know, these are the ones that were keeping the, the Baptist religion, you know, alive, uh, despite persecution by the, the mean old Catholic Church. Um, now, I'll say most Baptists that I've met and talked to have not read this book, and, and that's not the history that they ascribed to. Um, but nevertheless, that's the claim that was being made in this particular book called The Trail of Blood. Um, and just like the Dan Brown revisionists, you know, that's, this history is also not true history. Um, the real history of the Cathars is something quite different. And once you, you learn about them, you'll see that they are neither proto-Baptists, um, nor um, are they, you know, Dan Brown conspiracy, you know, sympathizers uh, at all. Um, so, when are we talking about? We're talking about the 12th century in Europe. This is when the Cathars first come onto the scene. This is when we start to see them in the written record. Um, and But the origins of the Cathar movement are somewhat earlier. By the time we get to the middle of the 12th century, um, they're already large enough and prominent enough that the church is perceiving them as, as a threat. Um, so that's kind of where we're going to pick up, though, is the 12th century. What was the church like? What was Europe like during this period? Well, quite different than a lot of the earlier periods that we've been talking about. If you if you think back to some of the other heresies that, that we've mentioned, like Arianism, for example, um, you know, the church in in the you know first few centuries was a persecuted church. It was an underground church. It was uh, a church that depending on who was in power um, in the Roman Empire, may have been passively tolerated, um, but more often than not, it was aggressively persecuted. Um, and so the church was was really kind of stymied by that. This was also the age of martyrs, um, and that um, really uh, fueled a lot of the, the growth and the evangel um, evangelical zeal um, that... Uh, uh, that you saw in those early centuries. A lot of converts came in. I mean, the church had fantastic growth despite persecution. Um, but it was a persecuted, you know, church. And even once the church did become legal, there was always this tension that was there between the church and the state. And the church had to be on guard against uh, the emperors uh, exerting too much control um, in the affairs of the church and, and so forth. And, you know, we've, we've addressed a lot of those issues. But by the time you get to the Middle Ages, um, things were, were different. The church was not this persecuted entity. Um, the church was, in fact, the, the dominant force in Europe, not just religiously, but also politically and also socially. 
Um, the Roman Empire had, had fallen uh, in the West um, for all intents and purposes. Um, the, the, the vestiges of the Roman Empire that remained were all in the East and Byzantium. Um, in the West, uh, it, it no longer had any, any functioning you know, existence. And so the church was the, the only large-scale and uh, in, in universal institution in Western Europe that could provide any kind of law, any kind of um, public services, uh, and the basic structures that society relied upon. And so the church grew greatly in power um, after the decline of the Western Roman Empire. Uh, it grew in power and it also grew in wealth. Um, and most of the wealth, when we talk about the church having wealth, most of the wealth was land. It was in the form of land. Society at that time was not oriented around money per se. Like we have our economy that's focused around you know money, cash, um, but land in the Middle Ages was the real measure of wealth. And so when people wanted to give to the church to donate, you know what they would give more often than not was land. And so the church amassed great amounts of land. It became the largest landowner in Europe. Um, and then naturally, once you have all this land, you have to oversee that land. You have to be responsible for that land. And so, um, you know, the church uh, was involved not just in, you know, the religious, you know, um, concerns of society, but really every level of society, uh, because it had to be this, this property owner, this land owner, this land manager. Uh, and that involved it in agriculture, that involved it in, in real estate, it involved it in, um, you know, just all aspects of society. Europe at this point was was governed by uh, the feudal system, um, and just very briefly, if you're not familiar with how the feudal system works, you know, at, it's a system of lords and vassals. It's a system of allegiances. Um, at the very bottom of that system, you had the serf, and the serf was more or less tied to the land, and the serf's duty was to farm, to produce a, a bounty from that land. And uh, the serf was allowed to keep a portion of what he produced to to meet you know him his needs, his family's needs. But the bulk of what he produced would go to the one who owned the land, um, his lord. And that lord may be actually under the service of another, even greater lord that he would owe certain things to. And so it was a system of lords and, and vassals. A vassal would swear fealty to a lord, would owe that lord certain allegiances, mostly in the form of you know, food production, agriculture, or military service. And the lord would also owe the vassal certain duties. Right, in the form of protection, um, oversight, um, law enforcement, that sort of thing. So this whole system of lords and vassals was governed by oaths, solemn, solemn vows that were made between the vassal and, and the lord. Um, so that's, that's kind of how Europe was structured in the Middle Ages. Um, and in the 12th century in particular, Europe was entering into the height of the Middle Ages. Um, as I said, the church was the largest landowner in Europe, and so it was hugely powerful, and it was heavily involved in the politics of the day. Um, but its main uh, power was in the influence that it had over the minds and hearts of the people, because Europe was an extremely religious country um, at this time. And when we talk about the faith of Europe in the Middle Ages, we're talking about the Catholic faith. We're talking about the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was the faith. The faith was Europe. Um, we, you can't compartmentalize these things like we today have a tendency to compartmentalize. You know, 
we have our religion in one box, we have our politics in another box, we might have our, um, you know, our, our work, our business in another box, and, you know, but in medieval Europe, those were all intertwined, and the religion permeated everything, um, and the religion was, was the Catholic religion. Um, so the Catholic Church was, was hugely influential and hugely powerful. Um, in the 12th century, there was a, a renaissance going on. Um, medievalists will talk about the renaissance of the 12th century. Um, this is a period immediately after the First Crusade, which was really the only successful crusade, which um, retook Jerusalem from the uh, Muslim invaders in the year 1099 and uh, opened up a lot of um, trade and um, an exchange uh, between uh, the Middle East and, and Europe. And that led to the rediscovery of a lot of the writings of the ancient Greek philosophers and other Eastern scholars. Um, so education um, flourished at this time. Art, architecture flourished during this time. Uh, this is the century, the 12th century, when the first universities in Europe were being founded by the Catholic Church. New religious orders were, were springing up and being founded uh, during this time. Um, and there was a reform of the church going on from within. Um, in the 11th century, Pope Gregory VII had instituted uh, a series of reforms of the clergy that was now being implemented and kind of practiced and lived out in the 12th century. Um, specifically, he was instituting um, some you know, new legal requirements for the clergy, uh, laws against simony and, and so forth, and he had issued a, a juridical procedure for, um, um, for addressing some of the, the charges of corruption and simony and, and abuse among the clergy that even a layperson could you know, bring a charge against a member of the clergy and have that be addressed. And so he's really calling the clergy to task um, and trying to weed out you know, the corruption and, and worldliness and so forth that um, uh, had been such a problem. And so that reform was going on in the 12th century. Things were really getting better in that, that arena. So everything really seems like it was going in the church's favor as we, we go into the 12th century. And it's in this century that we find the, the Cathar heresy, you know, being born. Um, and it's kind of counterintuitive. It's like if everything is going so well for the church, how did this heretical movement just spring up and, and become such a, a threat? Um, well, we don't really know. We don't really know. We don't really know where the Cathar movement started from. As I said, it, um, it seems to have started in the east and, uh, and spread west into Europe. Um, it has certain characteristics, which we'll talk about in a second, in common with some of the early Gnostic um, sects. Um, remember, we talked about Gnosticism in the second episode. Um, in, in some ways, it's similar to some of those early Gnostic beliefs. And so some historians have suggested that maybe it was influenced by that, you know, um, these, uh, you know, heretical sects um, never really vanished. You know, they may have, um, you know, shrunk down to have such a small influence. They, they weren't really significant historically, but they never really truly go away. And so there were pockets of Gnosticism that were still hanging out uh, here and there. And so perhaps one of those kind of just flourished and, and bloomed and turned into, you know, the Cathar heresy. Um, we don't really know. Um, it, it could have uh, come about independently and just coincidentally have some things in common with, with Gnosticism. Um, but how it came to be such a threat to the, the church in Western Europe in the 12th century, 
Um, well, you know, I mentioned that during this, this renaissance of the 12th century, you also saw the founding of a lot of new religious orders. Um, you know, the, it's often difficult for the church to tell um, at the beginning uh, the difference between a, a good, fruitful, orthodox, you know, religious movement and a, a bad, heretical, harmful religious movement, because a lot of times that zeal, that energy that's there at the beginning kind of looks the same in both cases. And, you know, you don't want to, you know, squash a, a flower before it blooms, you know, but you also don't want to, want to let a weed grow up in the garden and, and choke out, you know, the plants there. So, um, you know, it's, uh, if you think about gardening, you know, you've, you've planted your seeds in the garden and this plant springs up. And sometimes, you know, when this little seedling kind of springs up, you're like, hmm, I don't really recognize what that is. Maybe this is a, a seed that I planted that I want to grow there. And, and maybe it's a weed. Um, I'm going to let it get a little bit bigger until I can identify it and, and know whether I should let it be or, you know, and, and, and water it and nourish it and care for it or whether I should pull it up, you know, by the roots. Um, so that may have had something to do with it, um, in the midst of all this other intellectual curiosity and advancement and just, you know, good things that were happening in the church. It could be that by the time the Catharist threat was identified for what it was, it had already grown, um, too large. Um, by the time we get to the second half of the 12th century, the 1160s, um, for example, we know that there were Cathar groups in Germany, in France in Italy, and even uh, up in England. Um, most of them seem constant, uh, concentrated in southern France and in northern Italy. Um, in France, the Cathars were known as the Albigensians um, because that's the region in France that they um, that was kind of their stronghold. So sometimes you'll see the Cathars referred to as the Albigensians. Uh, same people. We're talking about the same group of people under either name. Um, in northern Italy, they were known as the Patarini, um, but again, the same same group of people. Um, and it's there in, in France and in northern Italy that the Cathars kind of became the most organized, um, even growing at their height to set up kind of like a rival church structure uh, there. Um, and that's, that's where the church would have to deal with them um, the most. Um, so... Uh, so who are they? What do they believe? Um, we don't really know, like I said, who founded them. They didn't have a founder, so to speak. It's, this wasn't like one heretical idea that a monk or a priest somewhere started preaching that, that got out of hand. Um, it's not like Arianism that's named after Arius, you know, um, or Pelagianism that's named after Pelagius. Uh, the Cathars aren't named after anybody. Um, as I said, their name comes from that Greek word, Catharoi, uh, uh, which means the pure ones. Um, so, um, but, but what did they believe? What did the Cathars believe? Well, the most important thing, the first thing to, to understand about their belief system, um, is that they were not monotheists. They did not believe in one God. Um, so right away there, you, you have a great difference between the Cathars and true authentic Christianity, because Christians are monotheists. We believe in one God. Um, the Cathars did not. They were dualists. They believed in two gods. They, um, they looked at the scriptures, and they believed that the God that was being spoken about in the Old Testament um, was different than the God that was being spoken about in the New Testament, that these were two distinct gods. Um, they identified the 
Old Testament God as the God of physical creation, um, also the God of darkness, and the God of evil. The, uh, the New Testament God, they identified as the God of light, the God of goodness, the God of the Spirit. Um, and these two gods, in, in the Cathar understanding, were co-equal. They were co-eternal. Right? They were equally powerful, and they were eternally at odds with each other. Um, and, and in that, you start to see shades of Gnosticism, because the Gnostics also had this distinct duality between the physical world, which they viewed as being evil, and the, the spiritual world, which they understood to be good. The Cathars had that in common with them. Um, if they didn't get that idea from the Gnostics, um, why would they have come up with it on their own? Well, it addresses the problem of evil, um, right? By the problem of evil, I mean the, the perennial question, why is there evil in the world, right? Why do bad things happen? Um, and, you know, philosophers have answered that question lots of different ways. Um, you know, we believe that the best answer to that, the only real authentic answer, is the Catholic answer, the Christian answer. And that is that, you know, God, the one God, um, is the author of all creation, and that all of creation um, is good. Uh, we look in Genesis, and after everything that God made, he looks at it and he said that it is good. Um, now, if you're a Cathar and you believe that that God is the evil God, then when the evil God creates something and says it's good, that means it's really bad because he's an evil God saying that it's good. But, of course, that's not what we believe. Um, we believe that there is only one God and that that God is good and that everything he creates is good. Um, and he didn't create evil. He didn't create anything that is evil. But evil, um, not being a created thing, uh, is defined as the absence of a good that should be there. And evil was introduced into creation by, um, you know, by us, by, by creatures that were given free will by God. Um, and you might say, well, why would God give us free will if that made evil possible? Well, it also makes love possible because love is a prerequisite for free will. Uh, to really truly love something, you have to choose it freely. Um, and so the same thing that makes love possible also makes evil possible. And evil was introduced into the world through, uh, through our rebellion against God. But because God does love us, because God does recognize us as so good, you know, he sees us as good enough that he is actually going to enter into his creation to save us. And he did that with the incarnation with Christ who suffered and died for our sins, right? So, um, you know, that's that story of the fall. It's the story of redemption. Uh, that's the greatest story ever told. That's the Christian story. Well, the Cathar answer to the question of why is there evil is, is different. Well, there's evil because there's an evil God. And there's good because there's a good God. And the good God creates good things and the evil God creates evil things. And that's why we see evil and good in the world. Because you've got these two co-eternal, equally powerful forces at, at work, locked in this constant struggle you know, with each other. Um, so really it's a very simple answer to the question of why is there evil. Well, because there's an evil God. Uh, as simple as that. But this, this dualism that they believed in, you know, uh, carried forward, it, it leads to all kinds of other beliefs and practices. So, for example, the evil God was associated with physical creation. So all of physical creation, all of material, the material world, is also evil. Um, whereas the, the good God, the God of light, is associated with the spiritual realm. So anything spiritual is good. Well, 
think about who we are as human persons. We possess both a physical material body as well as a spiritual soul. And so this means that within the human person, there's this conflict that these two aspects of the human person, body and soul, are in opposition to each other. And the Cathars taught that in order for the soul to survive, it had to overcome the body. And that was kind of the, the goal of the spiritual life for Cathars, is to overcome the body. And that manifested itself in all kinds of ways. So um, the Cathars believed in mandatory celibacy. They thought that sexual intercourse was evil um, because it was the union of two evil bodies. And because the purpose of sexual intercourse is um, to be fruitful, right? As God commanded, be fruitful and multiply. Um, sexual intercourse also has the potential of creating another physical body. And so that just manifests, you know, it, it um, um, multiplies the, the evil uh, there. So sexual intercourse was forbidden. Mandatory celibacy, right? Marriage, obviously, was also forbidden because marriage is this permanent um, uh, union that's made, you know, um, in front of God and in front of all in society. It's this public institution that says, I'm going to join my body with this other body. Uh, and, uh, and so that was forbidden. So no marriage, no sexual intercourse. And they didn't limit this prescription just to human beings as well, but also to animals. Animals had physical bodies, and animals were the product of a sexual union. Therefore, animals were also evil. So the Cathars abstained from eating any food that was the result of a sexual union. So that means no milk, no dairy products, nothing derived from animals. So um, they, they ate a very strict vegan diet, right? Now, if you wanted to take this to the extreme, you could say, well, they're eating plants, and plants are also physical creatures, right? So aren't plants evil? Isn't that hypocritical of them? Well, yeah, but they have to eat something. So <laughs> I guess because um, uh, they held uh, uh, the sexual act in such a low regard, the fact that animals reproduce sexually put them on, on a lower level than plants. Uh, plants weren't seen to be as evil as, as animals. Um, so they could eat plants, but they wouldn't eat uh, meat. They wouldn't eat dairy products or anything that derived from animals. So, um, you know, and I, I want to be clear here. You can look at these practices like celibacy, vegetarian diets, and say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Catholic Church also do the same sort of thing, right? We, we have celibate members in our church. Um, those who enter into religious orders um, take a vow of celibacy. Um, men in the priesthood um, take a vow of celibacy. Um, and we even have groups that, that eat vegetarian or in some cases even strict vegan diets. Um, some monastic orders you know, would impose a vegetarian diet on their members. Um, during you know, penitential seasons such as Lent, you know, we, we have days when um, the Catholic faithful are forbidden from eating meat. So how can we say the Cathars are wrong by uh, practicing celibacy and, and strict vegan diets when the Catholics do the same thing? 
Well, there's a major difference, right? Well, number one, it's not mandatory for Catholics. Um, no one is required to enter into a religious order. No one is required to, to enter the priesthood. So those who do take vows of celibacy in the Catholic Church do them freely. Um, it's not expected of all, all Catholics. The same thing is true with those who practice you know, strict fasting. Um, it's a voluntary thing. Now, there are specific days and seasons when it's mandated by canon law that we observe fasting so that we can have this communal practice in common, but it's, it's not something that we do throughout the year. Um, and also our reasons for giving up these things are different. We don't, you know, the celibates within the church don't abstain from sexual relations because they believe that, that sex is evil or that marriage is evil. Um, and likewise, we don't abstain from meat when we fast because we believe that meat is evil. In fact, that's the exact opposite reason. We believe that these things are very good. And because they are so good, giving them up voluntarily represents a sacrifice for us. And so it, we do it as a, as a penitential practice. We do it as a disciplinary practice, not because we believe that these things are evil and it's immoral to actually do them. Um, and clearly that's seen because, you know, for the most part, Catholics are, are perfectly, you know, fine eating meat. Um, it's, it's allowed, it's celebrated. Um, and marriage um, is uh, not only permitted and praised in the Catholic Church, but it's held to be a sacrament. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something as a sacrament that is a vehicle of God's grace to us in the world. It makes Christ present. So far from being uh, an evil, um, it's, it's something that's a great good and is in fact holy. So our attitude towards these things is diametrically opposed to the Cathar attitude. Um, Cathars believe that, that sex was evil, marriage was evil, um, and, and they practice this strict ascetic lifestyle, this strict vegan diet, because they believe that the physical things of the world were, were also evil. So, with that kind of attitude, no surprise, the Cathars also rejected the Catholic sac sacraments. Um, because if you consider what the sacraments are and how they operate, they make use of physical matter to transmit God's grace into the world. And so we have water, for example, in baptism. Or we have the wine and the bread that we use in the Eucharist. Or the oils that we use for confirmation, for anointing of the sick. Um, so all of these are physical signs that make present to us um, the, the invisible um, reality of God's grace. In, in the Cathar religion, their only sacrament was the laying on of hands, um, which really is inconsistent because laying on of hands also makes use of, of physical things, right? It's the laying on of the hands of a physical body, your physical touching of someone. Um, of, of another physical person. Um, so you could claim they're inconsistent in their practices uh, to that extent. But again, you know, we are physical beings, and so it's impossible for us to, to get rid of absolutely everything uh, that, that is physical. Um, and then most importantly, in terms of the differences between the Cathar heresy and true Christianity, is the Cathars rejected the Incarnation. They uh, did not believe in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. Um, uh, they, they didn't believe in the incarnation of Christ. Because, again, they looked at the New Testament God as the good God of light and spirit. 
Um, and that good God of light and spirit would never, never, never unite himself with a physical body because physical bodies were evil and the product of that evil God of the Old Testament. So when they read about Jesus in the New Testament, um, to them, Jesus just appeared to have a human body in order to communicate with us. And things like the crucifixion and the resurrection, um, those were just illusions. Those were things that happened to Jesus' apparition. They weren't things that happened to a real physical body. Um, so um, they were, I guess you could call them metaphors, but, but not real historical events, not in the sense that they happened to a physical body. Um, so that just throws the whole idea of redemptive suffering and, and everything that goes along with it and, you know, just throws it out. As, and it also throws out the idea of the bodily resurrection, which we believe in. So, you know, their beliefs were just diametrically opposed to Christianity on so many levels. Um, and then obviously it almost goes without saying, but the Cathars were also iconoclasts. We talked about iconoclasm in the last episode. Cathars shared that iconoclastic um, uh, belief, rejecting the use of all sacred images. Uh, because they were problematic for the, the Cathars, right? Um, images themselves are physical things. Um, you know, they're, they're paintings on, on wood or on canvas or they're statues or stained glass or whatever. These are physical objects and so therefore evil. Um, and then also their depiction of, uh, their depictions of physical things, which are also evil. And the thing that they hated the most was the crucifix because of what it represented. The, the crucifix represented everything that they stood against because it was the ultimate symbol of how the suffering of the physical human body can be redemptive. Uh, and it's, it's the image of just what God is himself is willing to endure physically um, on the cross for us to redeem, uh, to redeem us. Um, and, and that just goes against everything that the Cathars believed. Right? that they, they did not believe that God would, um, would take on a human body and they didn't believe that God would, um, you know, would suffer that way and certainly didn't believe in the resurrection of, of the body. Um, so they hated the crucifix. Now, understanding what the Cathars truly believed, we can see just how ridiculous the claims are that um, that the Cathars, you know, were either you know Dan Brown conspiracy people, you know, as they're painted in the Da Vinci Code, or any sort of proto-Baptist um, group. I mean, so. In the Da Vinci Code, the claim is made that Jesus was married and had a daughter with Mary Magdalene, and that the the real secret of of Jesus is that his bloodline, the divine bloodline, continues on. Um, that that is totally against anything the Cathars would have believed. The Cathars forbid marriage. Um, the Cathars didn't believe in the incarnation. Um, in in the the thought to them that that the good God of light that, you know, they believe is represented by Jesus, who was just an apparition and didn't even have a physical body, you know, that that God would, would be married and would have sexual intercourse and produce offspring, produce a child, and that it would live on in the bloodline of a family. This is antithetical to everything that the Cathars, you know, believe. They would have hated that thought even more than the Catholic Church, you know, rejects it. Um, and what about the claim that Cathars are proto-Baptists? Well, 
you know, you can look at certain things that the Cathars practiced, certain, you know, beliefs they had as in common with Baptists, right? The Cathars rejected the Catholic sacraments, you know, as do Baptists. Um, the Cathars didn't utilize the crucifix, you know, in their, in their um, piety. And, you know, most Baptists also don't, you know, use the crucifix, um, because that's a Catholic thing, um, but their reasons for rejecting the crucifix are totally different, totally different than the Cathar reasons for rejecting the crucifix. And apart from those like superficial similarities, that's that's really where the similarities stop. I mean, for goodness gracious, the the Cathars reject the incarnation of Christ. Um, they they don't even believe in one God. They're not even monotheists. They believe in two gods. So you know, on these real fundamental levels you know, Baptists would rightly condemn them as, as heretics. Um, it, it goes against, you know, the basic fundamental tenets of, of Baptist belief, you know, and, as well as Catholic belief. So the idea that they're, you know, proto-Baptists or early Protestants or whatever is just ridiculous when you look at, at what they actually did, um, did believe. Um, the real reason why people today like to look back on the Cathars with a sympathetic eye is because they were persecuted by the Catholic Church. And so other groups that disagree with the Catholic Church um, look for an ally there. They, they want to paint them more sympathetically, but that's really not justified by, by, the, actual, um, by the actual history. So, a little bit more about the Cathars. Um, now, if you think about their strict ascetic lifestyle, their mandatory celibacy, their strict vegan diet, and so forth, um, that lifestyle wasn't able to be followed by everyone. And so the Cathars kind of divided themselves into two different groups. The, the first group, the smaller group, they were called the perfects. And if you are a Cathar perfect, then you were the one. You were one that would actually follow that lifestyle. You would um, you would live a celibate life. You would um, limit yourself to that strict vegan diet, um, and and live this life of of asceticism. Um, most followers of of Catharism were were not perfects. They were called hearers. Um, they uh, they lived within ordinary society. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they learned from the perfects and they aspired to be perfects one day, um, but they held off on actually entering into that state, um, and taking those vows. Um, uh, when a hearer did choose to become a perfect, that was done through a ceremony that involved the laying on of hands, as I mentioned, called the consolamentum, which means the consolation. And, um, once that was done, once you went through the consolation, you were expected to live by that strict ascetic lifestyle, no exceptions. If you fell away from that, if if you um, you know ate meat, if you had sexual relations, or God forbid, if you got married, um, you you could were allowed to receive the consolation one more time in life. But if you had to receive it a second time, you no longer had authority to to teach, to instruct, you know, the hearers, um, and and two times was the limit. And so most people would wait until they were older, towards the end of their life, before they would choose to receive the consolation. Um, and one of the the most heinous practices that developed in Catharism was something called the endura. Um, 
And what this was, if um, a group of hearers thought that a perfect, one of their, their teachers, um, was about to fall, if he was struggling and living this strict ascetic life, um, in their mercy, they would help him by ceremonially suffocating him. Um, yeah, so uh, they, they thought that that's what charity demanded, that they were helping him to escape the bonds of the flesh, to uh, escape the bonds of his physical body, and they would uh, um, suffocate him to death. Um, so, yeah, those are the Cathars. Um, the Cathars actually grew in popularity. Um, they, they represented a major threat in medieval Europe. Um, and you might wonder why, you know, given, you know, everything that, that, that we've just learned about them. Um, you know, if you were starting a new religious group, that's not what you would put on the front of the brochure, you know. Join our group. Um, never get married. Never have sex. Um, never have kids. Um, you know, never eat a hamburger or a steak again in your life. Um, oh yeah, and we might suffocate you to death if you can't live up to these, these standards. Um, you know, nobody would sign up for that, you would think. Um, but it actually really did grow in popularity. Part of the reason is because the austerity and the simplicity of their lifestyle um, was associated with holiness. People would, would admire that. Even if they couldn't themselves um, uh, live that sort of lifestyle, they admired it in others, and they would associate that with, with great holiness. Um, especially, as I said, contrasting with what people perceived to be, you know, the worldliness of a lot of the Catholic clergy um, in Europe at the time. Um, so that was part of the, the attraction to the Cathars. And also the simplicity of its doctrine. Um, the Cathar belief system was not complex. Um, as I said, it, it presented a very simple solution to the problem of evil. Um, and so it was a way of kind of making sense of the world in a, a real straightforward, um, you know, way that really didn't make a lot of intellectual demands uh, upon, upon people. Um, so those things made it to be a little bit more popular than, than you, would, you or I would, would perhaps think. Um, so how did the church respond to this threat um, that was, was plaguing Western Europe in, in the 12th century? You know, well, it was condemned by popes, it was condemned by, by church councils, um, and, and that kind of goes without saying. Uh, this wasn't like some of the earlier Christological heresies and things where, where great debates had to happen to decide you know, just what is doctrine on these issues. And it was clear from the get-go that what the Cathars believed was, was not in line with Christianity. Um, so that was never up for debate, and so the condemnations came pretty, pretty swiftly. Um, but... Uh, but still it grew. Still it grew. Um, so a formal preaching mission to the, the Albigensians there in southern France um, was begun, uh, led by a man named Bishop Diego um, of Osma, um, who was a Spanish bishop. And he left his diocese in Spain, and he traveled to southern France, and he took with him uh, a young Augustinian uh, friar, um, or a young Augustinian monk, rather, excuse me, um, and a group of Cistercian uh, monks uh, to go and preach to the Albigensians in southern France. Um, and not just to preach, but their idea was that they would live among the, the people in southern France, and they would attire themselves very simply. 
They would dress very simply uh, in imitation of the very simple clothing that was worn by the Cathar perfects. Um, they would live a very simple lifestyle. Um, they, would, um, they would do this to gain the trust of those people that they were preaching to because they wouldn't want people to be able to accuse the, the Cathars of being more pure than they were, right? Um, so they wanted to present themselves as just as unattached to the physical goods of this world as were the Cathar hearers. So they had a very austere lifestyle when they lived among the Albigensians uh, there. Um, and they preached the gospel. And that mission, that mission met with, with some success. Um, it was working. The problem was that they weren't able to sustain it for long enough um, because the bishop, Bishop Diego, you know, he needed to go back to his diocese. A bishop can't be away from his diocese forever. And the, the monks that were with him, they had to go back to their monasteries. Um, monastic life is a life of stability. It's one of the vows that, that monks make. Um, when you enter into a monastic um, order, you are tying yourself to that monastery and to that community at that monastery. Um, it's expected that that's where you're going to live and reside and the rest of your life and that your life is spent there in prayer, that that's your work. Your work, your service to the church is dedicating yourself to prayer in this community. Uh, so you really are cut off from the world uh, to a, a large extent. You may be permitted to leave you know, on a temporary basis for exceptional reasons um, like, like these Cistercians um, you know, were. But that's, it's temporary. It's not meant to be a, a permanent absence. And so, you know, the monks had to go home. They had to go back to their monastery and continue their vocation there. So the mission was successful while it lasted. It just couldn't last for very long. Um, eventually, though, things got to be such a problem that the church needed to take more severe action. Um, Pope Innocent III, who reigned from the years 1198 to 1216, um, he instituted canonical procedures uh, to, to deal with heretics. Um, he, uh, he looked upon heresy as being the same as the crime of treason. Um, and his, his logic was that treason is when a citizen is unfaithful to his country and heresy is when a Christian is unfaithful to the church. And so both treason and heresy involved a betrayal of loyalty. Um, heresy is even worse than treason because not only is it a betrayal of the church, but it's a betrayal of truth. Um, it's a rejection of the truth. And so what Innocent III um, put into place were penalties for heretics that you know, would basically be like what the state would impose upon people who were guilty of treason. And at the time, what that meant was confiscation of property and disinheritance of offspring. So if, if you were guilty of treason, um, you weren't allowed to hold your property. The state would come in and confiscate your property, and then your, your offspring, um, your children, couldn't inherit your land and titles. Um, and, uh, and as I mentioned, that was the major form of wealth in medieval Europe at the time was land and the title went with the land and so that was really devastating if the the state you know confiscated that from you and so innocent the third is saying the same penalties ought to be applied to to heretics um, now the church didn't have the means to impose those penalties um, that belonged to the state and so the Pope looked to Catholic rulers of Europe to enact these these penalties and he was hoping that by putting political pressure on the Cathars, 
combined with the preaching of the faithful clergy, that that would put an end to the heresy. Um, but things would continue to get a lot worse before they got better. Uh, the Cathar movement really did continue to grow in southern France. Um, a lot of the lower nobility actually embraced Catharism because they saw you know, the Cathars kind of um, growing in strength and influence in, in southern France. That meant a lessening of the church's influence. And since the church held a lot of land in southern France, if they weren't able to actually you know, manage that land and, in, uh, you know, enforce their ownership of that land, it was up for grabs. And so a lot of the, the lesser nobility, the lower lords, you know, had an interest in, you know, seeing the church's um, power and influence weaken because then they could come in and they could exert control over those lands. And so they supported the Cathars, which is kind of a disingenuous reason because, again, Cathars thought that all of physical creation, which would include land, was evil, um, but nevertheless, there you go, right? People's motives are often um, often mixed. So, you know, meanwhile, the the lords and nobilities in northern France had, a, you know, a longstanding rivalry with the the nobility in southern France, and so while the nobility in southern France was embracing Catharism, the nobility in northern France was calling for their suppression. Um, and so France itself was, you know, just turning into this hotbed of violence and conflict. Um, and, uh, you know, and the Pope was just continually asking the King of France, you do something about this, in this conflict within your, your kingdom. Um, in the year 1208, a papal representative was actually murdered in the south of France. And so uh, Pope Innocent III, you know, he, he kind of took the nuclear option as far as um, ecclesial penalties are concerned, and he called for a crusade against the Albigensians. Now, up until this point, crusades had only ever been called against, you know, the infidel, the Muslims who had invaded the Holy Land, and we had to go back and defend the Holy Land and take it back from the Muslim aggressors. Um, but now he's calling for a crusade against, you know, you know, France, basically, <laughs> against the Albigensian region in France. And what this meant is that the Pope was offering the same privileges, the same exemptions, the same indulgences to those who would go and fight the Cathars in France as had previously been offered to those who would go and fight in the Holy Land. And so that resulted in a period of great and bloody violence um, in, in southern France. Um, we're not going to go through all the, the military you know, conquests and the, the battles and, and all of that um, uh, we don't have time, and, and that's not really the focus of this podcast. But if you're interested in that, um, you can read um, a, a book by Hilaire Belloc called The Great Heresies. Um, and I mentioned that in episode one as one of my, um, my resources for this series. Um, he, he details a lot of those, those military um, um, events. Um, but I will say that they weren't 100% successful. Um, they may have been successful from a military point of view, right? There were a lot of victories that the church won against the Cathars, um, but they weren't successful in winning over the hearts and the minds of the French people. Uh, a lot of people in France that weren't themselves Cathars, they were really reluctant to help the church in, in you know, hunting down their fellow Frenchmen, um, even though their religious beliefs differed. Um, so it, it was not successful at all in, in that sense. Um, really the most successful thing that they could do is to 
you know, bring back that preaching mission to go in and preach the gospel among the the, the people in southern France. And so that's what they did. Um, the uh, uh, Bishop Folk, who was the Bishop of Toulouse in France, um, he called for a reinstitution of this preaching mission, and he knew just a man to undertake the task. Um, and that was the Augustinian uh, monk that had um, been the companion of Bishop Diego of Osma during the first preaching mission into the region. That Augustinian monk was a man named Dominic. We know him today as Saint Dominic, uh, the founder of the Dominican order. Um, Saint Dominic came to uh, to southern France in the year 1215 to begin this second and much more extensive preaching mission to the Cathars. Um, uh, again, this, this mission would be the founding of the Dominican order, um, whose official name is the Order of Preachers. Uh, because they were founded to preach the truth, to preach the gospel uh, to the Albigensian heretics. Um, so if you know any Dominicans today, um, you'll notice after their name, you'll see the initials OP. And that stands for Order of Preachers, which is the official name of the Dominican order. So the followers of St. Dominic, those that went with him on this preaching mission, um, did not just preach the Christian gospel, they lived the Christian gospel. Um, they adopted the same tactics as before. They lived very simple lifestyles. They did not own any property. They begged for what they needed. Um, the Dominicans, together with the Franciscans, who were also founded around the same time by St. Francis, uh, they're called the mendicant orders. Um, mendicant meaning begging. They're the begging orders because these orders embraced radical poverty. Um, and so they, they literally had to beg for what they needed to survive, trusting in God. Uh, kind of like the 72 disciples that Jesus sends out on the first preaching missions to um, you know, go out two by two into all the towns you know, ahead of Jesus. And he said, you know, do not take any, any coins, do not take any money, do not take a sack, do not take a second tunic, do not take sandals for your feet, right? Um, but just rely on the hospitality of others to... Um, to sustain you and trust in God. And that's what um, you know, the, the followers of St. Dominic um, did, uh, and St. Francis as well. So they committed themselves to living this very simple life, um, free of worldly possessions. And that was essential to their preaching mission. They really did view that as an essential aspect of, of their mission, uh, so that they um, would not be able to be unfavorably compared to the Cathar perfects and their austere lifestyle. Um, and that long-term and committed preaching effort that the, the Order of Preachers, the Dominicans, um, uh, put in place, combined with the, the military and the political pressures that were being put on them, um, that effectively put an end to the Cathar movement um, in France by the middle of the 13th century, so the mid-1200s. Uh, Cathars kind of survived a little bit longer in northern Italy, um, but um, but the church dealt with them, you know, as well. Um, in northern Italy, the church actually instituted a formal inquisition uh, to deal specifically with the problem of lingering Cathar influence. Um, uh, what the inquisition is is it's an, an ecclesial court, uh, a juridical court, a court of law. And um, it's a, it was a, a court that the church put in place by which a person who was accused of heresy uh, would be able to actually come and plead their case before um, a judge, uh, an ecclesial judge. Um, again, because heresy was seen as the same as treason, 
prior to the establishment of the Inquisition, if someone was accused of heresy. So, you know, while the, 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 the church and the, the Christian rulers of Europe were combating Catharism, you know, someone would say, oh, my neighbor's a Cathar, my neighbor believes in that, right? And they would get tried in the civil courts and, you know, tried of, um, you know, for heresy as well as treason. Um, and the civil courts were not known for their leniency. Um, so by establishing this inquisition, um, the church opened up a, uh, a venue for people who were accused of heresy to, um, you know, to, to stand before a, a church judge rather than a civil judge. And uh, despite kind of the, the negative um, uh, reputation that the Inquisition has today, um, the, the truth uh, of it, if you compare the Inquisition, the court of the Inquisition, to um, the, the civil courts, uh, the secular courts of the day, um, the, the Inquisition was much more lenient. It acquitted far more people than it convicted. Um, and in the case of the Cathars, you know, if you were accused of being uh, a Cathar, um, all that the Inquisition required of you was if you could prove that you were married. If you could prove that you were married, that was enough to clear you of, of the charge of being a Cathar because Cathars were forbidden to marry, right? Uh, I suppose the same would be true if you, you know, ate a piece of meat <laughs> or something. Um, so the church instituted this, this formal mechanism um, by which someone accused of heresy could, could come and defend themselves. And that's one of the long-term effects of the Cathar heresy, right? So even though the Cathars didn't really give us a, um, uh, you know, a, a reason to kind of crystallize and, and clarify our, our basic doctrines, like some of the earlier Christological heresies did, like Arianism and so forth, uh, the Cathars did have uh, a lasting influence uh, in the church that is largely good. And that would be the founding of the Dominican order, the order of preachers. They're around because of the church's response to the Cathar heresy. Uh, they're a response of preaching the gospel and living a pure and simple lifestyle. Uh, and they're still one of the, the strongest and most vibrant religious orders out there today. So much good has come out of the Dominican order. Um, so many great saints. Um, the greatest of which uh, is St. Thomas Aquinas. He's the one that springs most immediately to mind. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas is probably the most brilliant mind, uh, intellect, that the church has ever known. Um, I mean, he's right up there with St. Augustine. Um, his, his great work, the Summa Theologica, is, you know, it's still being, you know, mined for its wisdom today. It's the bedrock of kind of the scholastic tradition uh, in the Catholic Church. Um, he's, he's such a great saint. He's the patron saint of students and academics and universities. Uh, so for all of you college students, you know, he's a good one to know. He's a good one to invoke and to, to ask for his intercession, especially when you're studying for exams. Um, Right? So he was a Dominican. He came out of this, this tradition of the order of preachers. Um, and then also the establishment of the Inquisition in the church. Again, it, the Inquisition's got a, a bad rap today, um, but a lot of that is kind of the, the black legend, right, um, uh, that wants to make the Catholic Church look like this bad, evil, oppressive thing. Um, but if you look at it in the context of the times, the Inquisition was really a movement of mercy, and uh, it provided a, a more merciful, more lenient um, um, a venue for people who were accused of heresy to to come and, um, and get a fair hearing, and and again it acquitted far more people than it ever convicted. Um, people would prefer their cases to be held uh, to be handled by the the Church's Inquisition rather than you know the the courts of the secular state. Um, so 
the long-term effects of the Cathar heresy within the church were, were mostly positive um, for, for that reason. But, you know, the, the lingering effects of the, this duality that the Cathars um, uh, held between the spiritual world, which they saw to be good, and the, the physical world, which they believed to be evil those influence lingered, you know, that, that lingers on a little bit, and it continues to crop up um, from time to time. Um, there were segments of, of the Protestants that um, really embraced that kind of dualism where they condemned everything having to do with, you know, physicality. Um, and you'll even occasionally run, you know, see elements of that coming up within the Catholic Church, although it's not native to Catholicism at all. Um, Hilaire Belloc writes about this in his book, The Great Heresies. Uh, and I want to quote a passage from it to, to close out here. Um, he wrote this book in England in the year 1938. Um, and he, what he's doing in this passage is he's making a comparison between the, the Cathars, and, and he uses the name Albigensians, so the Albigensians, um, and the earlier Manichaeans, which the Manichaeans were one of the Gnostic uh, sects, um, and then the later Puritan movement that uh, arose out of the Reformation and, and kind of continues to linger on today even among certain more conservative um, or fundamentalist Protestant groups. Um, he, he draws a, a parallel between these three um, movements, um, specifically their, their condemnation of all things physical. Um, so what he writes, quote, One thing the Manichaean of every shade has always felt, and that is that matter belongs to the evil shade of things. Though there may be plenty of evil of a spiritual kind, yet good must be wholly spiritual. That is something that you will find not only in the early Manichaeans, not only in the Albigensian of the Middle Ages, but even in the most modern of the remaining Puritans. It seems indissolubly connected with the Manichaean temper in every form, Matter is subject to decay and is therefore evil. Our bodies are evil. Their appetites are evil. This idea ramifies into all sorts of absurd details. Wine is evil. Pretty well any physical pleasure or half-physical pleasure is evil. Joy is evil. Beauty is evil. Amusements are evil, and so on. Anyone who will read the details of the Albigensian story will be struck over and over again by the singularly modern attitude of these ancient heretics, because they had the same root at the, as the Puritans, who still unhappily survive among us. And then he goes on a little bit further on. Because the Catholic Church was strongly at issue with an attitude of this kind, there has always been a irreconcilable conflict between it and the Manichaean or the Puritan, and that conflict was never more violent than the form it took between the Albigensians and the organized Catholic Church of their day in the west of Europe. So the attitude that he's describing there, that our bodies are evil and all of our physical appetites and everything are evil and, and enjoying anything physical is evil, that is antithetical to the Catholic understanding of, of creation and the Catholic understanding of who we are. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we're hedonists. It doesn't mean that we, you know, indulge ourselves in all these physical pleasures because that is also evil. You know, the, the Catholic Church, you know, we understand that the fallen, the world that we live in is a fallen world. It's a fundamentally good world. 
God created it. He looks at everything that he creates. You read this in Genesis, and he says it is good. But it is fallen. So, you know, our, our bodies and the desires, the appetites of our bodies can be disordered. And in the sense that our appetites are disordered, they are evil. But our appetites themselves are not evil. Our appetites themselves are given to us by God. We just need to properly order them to their ends. And so the evil consists not in enjoying physical things, but in the abuse of physical things, and the abuse of that enjoyment, um, either by enjoying physical things you know, in an improper way, um, or by um, you know, placing undue importance upon them, by essentially making a false idol out of physical pleasure, by, um, by viewing it as the greatest good, when in fact it's not. God is the greatest good. This world, as good as it, as it, is, as it is, as good as it is, is passing away. And so, drinking is not evil, but drunkenness is evil. Eating is not evil, but gluttony is evil, right? Um, sex is not evil. In fact, we have a whole sacrament that's just built up to um, to celebrate the great goodness and the, the life-giving goodness and the creative goodness and the holiness of sexual relationships, and that's marriage. But pursuing that merely for purposes of pleasure and titillation, you know, outside of the, the, the context of you know, of marriage, which is its proper context, that's evil. So adultery, fornication, those sorts of things are evil. Um, so evil isn't the enjoyment of the physical thing itself, it's the abuse of it. And uh, so any, any movement, whether it's an Albigensian, the Cathars, right, or the early uh, Manichaeans and Gnostics, or the later day, you know, Puritans that sought to just um, suppress anything physical, anything having to do with the flesh as purely evil, is antithetical to Catholicism, antithetical to true, true Christianity. Um, we are physical creatures. We are also spiritual creatures. And so God, you know, who made us both physical and spiritual, he comes to us and he communes with us in both physical and spiritual ways. He does this through the sacraments. He, he gives himself to us in, you know, under physical signs like bread and wine that we can actually take into our bodies and consume. Um, and he wants to you, unite us with himself, not just spiritually, but also physically. He wants to redeem the whole human person, body and soul. And so that's why our salvation consists not in just some spiritual union with God, but in the bodily resurrection. And heaven for us is not some, you know, um, ethereal plane where we will exist only in, you know, uh, some kind of spiritual form. But heaven consists of a new heaven and a new earth, you know, a new creation where we will live together, um, you know, in God's kingdom with our physical bodies, our glorified bodies, uh, which is why things like the resurrection of Christ, the physical resurrection of Christ and his physical ascension into heaven are such important doctrines in Catholicism. So um, just bear that in mind, right? So the Cathars uh, kind of serve as a, as a good example of the worst that can happen when we uh, fail to realize the goodness of, of this creation that, that we inhabit, that God has given us. So that's it for this week. Come back and uh, listen in next week when we talk about another great medieval heresy, the Waldensians. So we'll ask, where's Waldo uh, next week as we continue to look at these great medieval heresies. Uh, have a wonderful week uh, and God bless.